Greetings, I'm Keith Klein, the host of the VentureFizz podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. This is episode 275, and today's guest is John Dickerson, co-founder and chief scientist of Arthur. Are we entering the primetime era for venture capital investments into artificial intelligence or AI startups? It at least seems that way, as things have cooled off with Web3 and crypto, so there is a ton of momentum in this space with lots of use cases, including companies like Jasper, an AI copywriting and content platform that recently announced $125 million in funding. Or it'll be interesting to see what companies get funded that are building on top of tech like OpenAI's Dolly 2. Arthur is looking to ride this wave, but they are taking a very smart approach with an infrastructure play with its machine learning observability platform. A great analogy for this sector is what network monitoring software does for the network, which detects outages, issues, and vulnerabilities. Arthur is looking to do the same for AI models. The company recently announced a $42 million Series B round of funding co-led by Acrew Capital and Graycroft Ventures. In this episode of our podcast, we cover lots of great topics like the pulse of innovation and entrepreneurship at two under-recognized institutions, that being the University of Maryland and Carnegie Mellon, John's career path prior to co-founding Arthur, including a deep dive into his research, experience as an advisor, and his path to becoming a tenured professor, all the details about Arthur and its platform, plus how the company is making AI more transparent and equitable, advice for academics who are thinking of taking on a leadership role at a startup, and so much more. Okay, quick side note, if you're listening to this podcast, then it is highly likely that you're interested in the founder journey and lessons learned around building companies. So please make sure you don't miss any future episodes by subscribing to the VentureFace podcast on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, or Google Play. Oh, and while you're there, please leave us a review. It really does help us out. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with John. John, thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm excited to talk to you because you've accomplished so much throughout your career through academia and what you're up to now with Arthur, which we're going to talk in great detail about the company and what you guys are doing. But to, to kick things off, I do want to talk a little bit uh, about uh, academic institutions and specifically around innovation, because there are schools you know, like the Stanford's and MIT's that get a lion's share of attention as far as where you know great IP is created and then developed and then people go to school there or they start a company and entrepreneurship just naturally happens at these institutions. Yet there's other great schools out there, two of which you're closely associated with, whether it's through degrees or your current professor, that being University of Maryland and Carnegie Mellon. So I wanted to break down those two schools because when I think about Carnegie Mellon, I'm like, okay, that school actually gets a, a, a good share of attention being in Pittsburgh. And I know uh, there's a lot of activity there happening right now, which is great. Uh, and also, but University of Maryland. So that's a school that's probably underserved as far as getting the attention that it deserves. So I just want to break down each school and what's going on there. Yeah, that's that's a, that's an excellent point. And I will say somewhat cheekily that uh, CMU in Maryland, I think are punching right up there in terms of technology with Stanford and MIT. It's just Stanford and MIT have this amazing PR, you know, amazing universities, obviously, but they also have a PR machine, which is, uh, fine-tuned to making people say MIT research or Stanford re research. And so this is a, a sticking point, especially with, with something like uh, Carnegie Mellon, which is, you know, known to be uh, either in the top or, you know, tied with MIT for the top AI school in uh, potentially the world, certainly in the United States. Uh, to me, this is, this is somewhat of a, a PR issue. Um, but you're asking about, you know, the state of entrepreneurship. So Maryland and CMU are sort of fundamentally different universities. Maryland is, you know, started as an agricultural land grant public university, is the flagship for the University of Maryland system. 
uh, and is enormous. So um, I don't know the number offhand, but it's close to 4,000 undergraduates there are majoring in computer science, period. Wow. And I, I didn't think know that's it was that probably, large. it's huge. It's like, it's like over 10% of the entire university has a primary major in computer science versus I think that's like two thirds of the population of CMU or something, if, if I were to say 4,000. So they're, they're very different sized schools. CMU also obviously a private school, um, you know, uh, endowed with a with quite a bit of money from from its namesakes such as Andrew Carnegie, um, but they they both share a lot in terms of innovation as well. Uh, so when I think of say Maryland innovation, right, like uh, you know Sergey Brin went to Maryland and started a, a small company called uh, you know Google after that. You know his dad taught at Maryland. I think maybe is still teaching in the math department at Maryland. Um, Brendan Areeb, you know founder of Oculus, so our computer science building uh, is is actually the Brendan Areeb Center for I think CS and engineering uh, out of Maryland as well. Uh, Squarespace out of Maryland, like there, there are these sort of very large companies that have their roots at a very large university like Maryland. And this is what I mean by there, there's some of, somewhat of a PR issue there, right? Well, I was going to say the PR thing, like your PR, like, because those are three names that are well known. And I'm like, I didn't know those three were Maryland. Like, that's amazing. Google Google obviously founded while Sergey uh, and Larry, Larry Page were at Stanford. But um, yeah, yeah, a lot of that, a lot of that blood coming out of Maryland. Um, so that, that's one. CMU and, uh, you know, CMU is, is uh, I was actually just there last week for a few few days recruiting for uh, back-end and front-end engineers primarily, and then obviously ML engineers for Arthur, the startup that we'll talk about in a bit. You know, it's known for producing some of, if not the strongest uh, sort of hacker-type minds in the computer science space. And so, I mean, if, I don't have these offhand, but if you look up like surveys for, you know, what what undergrad, straight out of undergrad computer science uh, uh, population would you most likely recruit from? Like CMU is often the top school there. Um, and, you know, I was there for my PhD. So that's a little bit of a different environment than being there for an undergraduate degree. But, you know, it's, it's, it's almost funny to walk on campus there because everything is computer science. Everything is computer science there. I've worked with psychology professors there and they're just computer scientists. I've worked with statisticians there and they're computer scientists. Just everything there is computer science. Uh, and it's 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 a very special place, and it produces a very sort of focused and uh, and technically talented type of person. Because I know, like, this is going back a few years ago now, but like, obviously, Google recognized it, and they have an outpost there. Uber that was like their autonomous driving group for a while, right? Yeah, yeah. There's, um, and I'm going to get some of the details here wrong, but yeah, Uber ATG uh, was in Pittsburgh, and then actually, I sold that off to a company called Aurora, which was founded by ex-Uber and ex-CMU professors. Uh, they've IPO'd, I think, SPAC'd actually, maybe in the last two years, something like that. Uh, recently, there was, I think, Argo AI, which just uh, went back into Ford and VW, um, which had, I think, most of its R&D focused at CMU. So yeah, I mean, there's a long history actually going back to the late 90s even uh, of autonomous vehicles coming out of CMU. I believe the first autonomous vehicle actually to cross the country, I believe, came out of CMU as well. It's this like old minivan. That, wow. You know, if you want to see something, yeah, it's, it's fun to That's look at. That's so cool. See, I love stuff like this. I love this. Okay. Well, let's uh, rewind the clock. So uh, where did you grow up? What were you like as a child? Oh, that's... <laughs> <laughs> That's a tough one. Uh, yeah, so I'm a I'm a I'm a, a military family. Uh, so we we grew up all over all over the country. I'll, I'll say that I'm either from Texas or from uh, or from DC. Um, so um, we moved to the DC area. My dad was working at at Walter Reed and pathology there, um, and so kind of grew up in the area. Ended up going to um, to Maryland for undergrad in part because of that as well. Um, yeah. And why did you decide to study computer science and mathematics? Yeah, it's actually really, really interesting. Uh, I often, you know, I'm in my home office here, but uh, in the office I have at Maryland, I have a couple of, of signs that I keep up. One is uh, 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 life is chaos. Uh, and that's, you really can't plan. You can't do sequential planning. 
uh, very, very easily in, in, in your life or, you know, well, just in general. And so for me, I think I stumbled into it in, in part because I actually went to the beach in like at age 15 or something like that um, with a, a, a girl that I, I was friends with and her father was driving us. And I remember coming back from the beach and he was driving back and she fell asleep and he and I were just chatting. And it turned out he actually he worked at Fort Meade in, um, uh, in, in basically in tech. Um, and so I, he ended up setting me up with a, with a program there, uh, two summer, summer internships there when I was like 16 and 17, working in biometrics uh, in an R&D lab uh, in, in, in the Fort, Fort Meade region. Um, and, uh, and that really just turned me on to computer science. And so like, this is purely chaotic, right? Like I was just at the beach coming back, just yeah. chatting with, you know, this man in his, I don't know, 50s or something like that. Um, and that ended up setting my path uh, almost immediately. And now obviously I was interested in computers before that, um, but not in a serious career type way. That is fat. It just it is amazing just to see how a career path can take this direction after just a, a random event like that. Yeah. So okay, so talk about kind of like how things got started with you as University of Maryland and your career path in academia. Yeah. So like I mentioned, I went to Maryland as an undergraduate, uh, uh, computer science and math major, sort of your traditional computer science path there. Uh, much smaller at the time. I think our graduating class was in the hundreds and now it's, um, it's much larger than that. Um, and uh, yeah, just uh, sort of got uh, got into research uh, there, uh, I guess maybe halfway through or so working on um, graphics and then working on um, something called multi-agent systems. And so this is getting us a little bit closer towards sort of the discussions around AI that we might have. This is the idea that you can either design the rules of a game or you can uh, analyze how uh, strategic agents interact with each other, e either in simulation or like little robots, you know, moving around a warehouse floor, or uh, or you can actually use this to model human behavior, which is uh, some of the DoD funded work that we were doing when I was an undergraduate. Um, so following that, I, I kept doing R and D, uh, and then ended up at, at at Carnegie Mellon, thinking that I would work again in this space. Uh, actually, at the time, I was thinking I would work with um, an excellent professor. She's now a head of J.P. Morgan's AI Research Center, uh, Manuela Veloso, um, on robots. She called them cobots. They're these little like robots that move around the building uh, where CMU houses its computer science faculty uh, and interact with humans. So this was like 10 years ago. There's been a lot of advancements there. But this idea that you can have these autonomous systems that need to interact with humans is like a very tricky, tricky thing to think about. Uh, so why is that? It's 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 harder than a world where you only have humans interacting. It's also harder than a world where you only have little bots interacting. There's this middle ground where you have humans who are just irrational and unpredictable and these robots that are maybe more predictable, but have a lot of different types of uncertainty around them that you have to have to worry about. They might not know where they are. They might not have actuators that are working, et cetera. And so I thought I would work in that space, which I think is really interesting. Yeah. But ended up not doing it. Like, what is the difference? Because you've got, um, like you said, robots work with robots. When I think of that, there's, you know, Kiva systems up in Boston that was acquired by Amazon. Right. Yeah. And I remember the first time I saw like the, the founder, uh, Mick Mounts, I think is his name. Uh, he was talking about his background. It was like a live event and he showed the warehouse and all these robots doing their thing. I'm like, man, there's some brilliant people in this world that figure this stuff out because they were just doing their thing and making the warehouse a lot more efficient. But when, so what would be the use case of factoring in like humans with robots and in, in in what you were talking about? Yeah, I would actually, so Kiva is a really interesting um, use case. And, you know, for anyone who hasn't looked this up, look up a video of what an Amazon warehouse looks like these days. And it's just, it's yeah. truly incredible to watch. Um, again, I don't know the numbers, but I do know it's, it's over hundreds of thousands of these robots that Amazon now has. Um, and, you yeah. know, they recently acquired 
iRobot. iRobot, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that'll be interesting to see as well. Um, but I would even argue that those Kiva systems, like the, the Amazon warehouse is interacting, obviously in a very controlled environment, but you know, at the end of the day, they are building, you know, interacting with humans in some way. But let me let me give you a more concrete example of why this is hard, right? Um, you know, you can have your own opinions about whether or not autonomous vehicles are on on the horizon and what that horizon is. But um, the idea that uh, you could have autonomous vehicles with no humans driving, that would be easier to do than having autonomous vehicles and also humans driving around on the road. Um, and the reason for this is because humans just inject a lot of entropy into the system, right? You have to negotiate with robots, right? I could actually code into, for example, an autonomous vehicle. I could code in something like, please cooperate with all of your neighbors, right? Now, imagine you are driving around and you're in a world where it's 95% autonomous vehicles and 5% human drivers. Human drivers are going to like, you know, for lack of a better word, they're going to mess with the robots, right? They're going to say, hey, you know, I know if I cut you off, you're going to break. And so I'm just going to do that. Or like, I know that, you know, maybe I'm just having a bad day. I'm going to edge this autonomous vehicle off the road, right? And there's this like, <laughs> no, I mean, I, I I would never do that, yeah. obviously, but like. Right, no, people, it's funny. People, That's, absolutely people would, do that. absolutely yeah. would. <laughs> and so you're, you're injecting some entropy. You're injecting some adversarial sort of reasoning into these systems. And um, and it's tough. It's real tough. Um, so like Waymo, for example, there's um there's a there's a there's a large group there that actually deals in sort of human interac interactions, right? Like how, how would an autonomous vehicle merge uh, when you have traffic on a highway, right? Humans are going to be uh, jerks to robots in that regard. So there's a lot of modeling around that. It's really, really interesting. It is interesting, yeah. I, actually, I was, last week I was reading, like there was a report that was talking about why autonomous vehicles haven't, they're not here yet and they were supposed to be. And it was that reason that where with the human element, it just, it's way harder than you would think, way harder. Like if it was just, if it was just autonomous vehicles doing their thing, it would just be a big math problem, right? Yeah. And I mean, there, there's still issues there, right? Like you still need to sense the world, right? I need to know that a boulder fell in front of me on the highway. I need to know where I am. I need to know where other mm -hmm. vehicles are. Sensors are going to fail. It might be nighttime. It might be snowing. It's like, there are a bunch of hard problems there, but I would say the hardest is interacting with, with these horrible things called humans. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Okay. Yeah. All right. So, so what'd you end up doing then? Yeah, I ended up actually just, again, life is chaos. Um, I ended up meeting up with who the person who became my PhD advisor at CMU, um, Thomas Sandholm, who now he's one of the directors of AI there um, at, a, at a conference before going. And um, he introduced me to a space uh, uh, at the intersection of economics and computer science, something called market design. Um, and so this set me down a path of working in the design of an optimization of markets. Um, and what do I mean by this? Well, you know, when people say markets, they often think about uh, you know, the, the little red or yellow or red or red or green, like candlestick graphs, you know, representing the DJII or like, you know, some NASDAQ thing or whatever. Um, I was looking actually uh, at the time, and I still do this actually in the design of markets where money isn't playing any role at all. Um, and so uh, these are things called matching markets. And so through, through, through my advisor, and then, you know, later through my own lab and other connections, I've worked a lot in um, organ allocation. I've worked a lot in markets for blood donation. And these are areas where, you know, money's playing some sort of role, setting the incentives for uh, hospitals to participate or for, you know, a uh, truck uh, to drive somewhere and have a blood donation uh, event occur. Um, but you're not actually, you know, paying somebody to give an organ. You're not paying somebody to give blood typically. Um, so what are the problems to have there? Well, one is, you know, how do I design the rules of the system so that people participate? How do I design the rules of the system such that uh, the allocation of these scarce goods are uh, you know, allocated fairly? Uh, and also in some sense efficiently. So these are classic economic problems. 
And then from like a, a machine learning or computer science point of view, uh, you know, designing sort of policies that are going to do this allocation or this matching process uh, such that they maximize some objective, some sort of efficiency objective, you know, cross fairness, something like that uh, in real time in these highly sort of like complicated environments. That, that's actually a tricky planning problem as well. So a lot of work in that space. And I've also done a lot of work actually in the design of like advertising markets and some of these more traditional markets that folks like to uh, like to consider. And they did all this factor into because you you founded a company before, right? Yeah, I've been involved in a, in a couple. So um, uh, in the DC area, uh, with with one of my mentors who was at the time a professor at the University of Maryland, he's now at Northwestern uh, via Supermanium. We spun out a we were trying to commercialize basically some geospatial analytics work that we'd done. Um, and then following that, I was involved, I guess, as like employee number zero, you might call it, in the um, in an advertising startup uh, called Optimize Markets, which was basically looking to bring. Uh, some of the, the technology that's been developed in the online advertising world, uh, which is like a very, very sophisticated uh, bidding languages. And obviously you clear these markets extremely quickly because it's, you know, it's happening on the internet uh, uh, to, to the world of traditional television and cross media. And so that company is, uh, is still rolling. Um, so doing pretty well. Obviously, I'm not, not as involved in that anymore because I, um, I have a new company. Um, but yeah, that was a very, very interesting market design and optimization problem. So, so talk about some of this research around organ allocation. Like, how how did that all factor into your you know research around markets? Yeah, so um, it, it's a very very interesting uh, use case uh, of of uh, optimization of uh, techniques from you know air quotes it here uh, artificial intelligence or traditional machine learning and statistics and also economics. It's this idea that you can form a market around um, allocating organs to people who are in need of organs. So. Uh, this is not a new idea. Actually, the, the the idea that I'll describe to you is something called kidney exchange uh, was first uh, posited actually as a thought experiment, I believe in 1986 uh, out of uh, the Chicago area, um, a, a guy Rappaport, um, who came up with the idea that said, hey, when you have uh, end stage renal disease, uh, say kidney failure, uh, there are a couple of ways that you can stay alive. Uh, one of these is dialysis. So dialysis in the United States, the most popular version is something called hemodialysis. Uh, and this is a, a it's a very expensive and, uh, and and bad quality of life, uh, uh, repetitive event that you have to go through, wherein blood is literally taken from your body, filtered, and then put back into your body. Um, and you know, kidney disease takes up a non-trivial percentage of of our GDP, not even just healthcare spend, like of our GDP. Um, and it's it's prevalent. You know, it's um, uh, you know, millions of people are are impacted by this uh, uh, worldwide. Uh, that's one way to stay alive. Another way would be to receive actually a um, uh, uh, an organ, a kidney from a deceased donor, right? So many of us, when, when you look at, for example, your driver's license, you'll see a little heart on there. That typically means that you are a um, an organ donor. Uh, so if you were to, unfortunately, for example, uh, die in a car crash or die at a hospital, uh, and uh, 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 you know you had kidneys that were intact, uh, they would be potentially harvested from your body and then matched to somebody on the deceased donor waiting list. Uh, uh, in a sort of geographic and transparent process. That's not a market yet, right? This is just a waiting list. Organs flow in and are matched to somebody in a transparent way. Now, uh, all things considered, the best way to handle end-stage renal disease, kidney failure, is to receive a kidney from a living donor. So many of us have two kidneys. We would live effectively the same life with exactly one kidney. Uh, and in the event that we can find 
a match that is medical match, logistical match, you know, I have insurance, I'm in the right area at the right time, et cetera. If I can find a match for somebody who needs a kidney, uh, then that person can, uh, with extremely high probability, actually, this is a, this is a very um, well-known type of surgery at this point, which is excellent. Uh, so like low, low risk of mortality, low risk even of morbidity here, uh, can receive a kidney from a willing donor. Okay, so that's kind of three ways to stay alive. Uh, all things considered, getting one from a living living donor is the way to go. Okay, great. So finding a living donor is tough. There's a lot of search friction there, right? You'll you'll often be driving around on the highway. You'll know, you'll see it. they're very sad, obviously, but like a um uh, like a billboard saying, "I need I need a liver and a, a type B, you know, kidney, that kind of thing for my child," uh, which is really really sad, and that that's obviously a, a failure of the system, right? And so in 86, there was a thought experiment. And then, you know, over the years, this happened in Korea, this happened in the Netherlands. And then around the turn of maybe 2000, 2001, 2002, 2003, um, some folks up in the New England area, uh, Al Roth, Utku Umber, Typhoon Samnez, et cetera, uh, put together a, uh, uh, an organized kidney exchange. Great. So what is a kidney exchange? It's this idea that I can walk into a market, an organized market, having end-stage renal disease and potentially having a willing donor who wants to give to me, but can't. So maybe my mom wants to give to me, but she has the wrong blood type. And maybe Keith, unfortunately, maybe you have end-stage renal disease and your dad wants to give to you, but he has the wrong blood type as well. So we enter into a room together uh, and it turns out that my mom could give to you and your dad could give to me. And so we swap donors in a sort of barter exchange. In fact, it is a barter exchange. Uh, and we both leave happy, right? We both had willing donors who couldn't give to us, but they're just happy to give a kidney if and only if their paired patient, in this case, you and me, receive a kidney in return. Mm. So this is a way of handling some of that search friction, right? It's much easier to find a willing donor than to find a willing and also compatible donor. So more people have these, and then you just kind of put them in a virtual room together, and they're able to swap donors. And so this is an excellent idea. And uh, over the years, this has really started to boot up worldwide. There's been recently actually a lot of international transplants even. Um, and... Um, and I've been involved in, in a few of these exchanges over the years as well, um, uh, most closely with one run by the United Network for Organ Sharing, uh, UNOS, here in the United States. So that's the concept. So what's been the impact? Yeah, well, the impact here is, and you know, this is not just the United Network for Organ Sharing exchanges. There are a number in, in the United States, uh, the National Kidney Registry, uh, NKR, uh, the Alliance for Paired Donation, APD, and then a lot of large transplant centers actually run their own exchanges internally, like Johns Hopkins comes to mind. Um, and so it's a, it's, a, it's a fragmented space, but it's, it's actually very interesting to see. I don't know the number offhand, but it's something like 10% of all living donations now are done through these exchanges. Uh, and it may be higher because it's hard to track these exchanges, especially when they're done internally. Like, so, so you're a professor now, you're a tenured professor. So what is the process to make that happen? Because it's, it's an accomplishment that very few get to that point. Yeah, it's, uh, again... Use my phrase for the for the podcast, which is life is chaos. Uh, it is it's a chaotic, <laughs> yeah. So that that is a market that is not designed well. That matching process of people to faculty positions, right? This is something yeah. that uh, desperately needs to be redesigned. Um, so in the computer science world, even if you're a very strong candidate, you end up applying to like I think I did like sixty different universities or something like that. Um, and you know you get it, it, it's just an opaque process. Um, and um, I ended up going to to Maryland for a couple of reasons. One is Maryland is an extremely strong. Uh, computer science university uh two is uh you know it's in the dc area many people don't know it's actually like i lived in dc for all all six years uh you know that i was pre-tenure at maryland most of the junior faculty do the university of maryland is on the metro there in the dc area so it's a very like dc area university and if you're interested in policy or if you're interested in even politics uh, then it's a very nice nice place to be and so i, I have a little bent there uh, did a little bit of work sort of advising the ftc 
uh, have some close connections with NIST. Like these are these are nice places that you want to be physically near if you want to do policy work. And Maryland's a nice university for that. Um, but at the end of the day, you really can't typically pick and choose where you end up. Um, you know, I was fortunate in that, you know, I looked very attractive on the market there. And then I had some personal connections at Maryland in this case. So I was able to sort of, uh, you know, direct myself to, to that university. Um, yeah, so that process, you know, it's been six plus years now, I uh, got tenure recently, um, and am now on leave, uh, you know, at, at Arthur. How did you get involved with Arthur? Yeah, that, that's a great, that's a great question. So uh, we had a, a couple of parallel paths for the folks who are on the founding team there. Uh, I'll talk about mine, and then I'll, and then I'll go into talking about um, Adam Wenchels, who's the uh, sort of CEO and, and like what I would say, primary co-founder of, of Arthur. Um, so my, my path, you know, we just talked about this this design of a market for the allocation of organs, right? Uh, well, obviously, concerns of fairness will arise when talking about any sort of healthcare applications, including including organ donation and. So I've been thinking very deeply about sort of the balancing act between competing objectives in these sorts of uh, systems, these dynamic systems for, for quite a long time in the context of markets. So, you know, fairness cross, cross uh, you know, some form of risk mitigation cross, you know, you just want to get a lot of people matched, that kind of thing. So around the same time, uh, maybe around 2011, 2012, or where like the first, what I would say are like modern fairness and machine learning papers came out and then, you know, increasing over the over the decade. Around the same time, the machine learning community was starting to wake up to concerns of things like fairness and other sorts of competing objectives in the space of uh, automated decisioning systems. Uh, and so this was sort of a fortuitous intersection where I'd been thinking about these for a long time in the context of economics. Uh, the machine learning community started to really, really care about these things uh, in the context of machine learning. Uh, and so, you know, I'm I'm on my path, and then in parallel, uh, Adam Wenchell, uh, the the CEO now of Arthur, uh, was on a path where he was acquired uh, into Capital One through a past startup that he founded, uh, and he started their AI group there. Okay, so uh, Capital One before before this AI group, uh, it's called the Center for Machine Learning, uh, booted up, um, had a very sort of fragmented space for their machine learning models that were, they were deploying, and he was brought in in part to to provide sort of a unifying force for uh, for all the sort of machine learning within within this large bank. Um, so he was there, I think it was for like three years or so, and uh, and had some pain points that he realized. One was that uh, people were using various technologies to develop various models, and they were, you know, putting them into deployment and then getting, for example, promoted. And then that model would sit there and sit there and sit there, you know, making, you know, credit decisions or whatever, uh, and nobody would be watching it. And sometimes it would fail. And then, you know, a week would go by or two weeks would go by, and then somebody would say, hey, you know, we're losing a bunch of money. Uh, who's watching this model, uh, and you know why? Why wasn't anybody looking at it? And so now he, you know, he can tell this story better than I can. But he had a number of experiences, basically, where people were like, you know what, like this person got promoted away, or they changed companies, or whatever. Uh, and he was like, you know what, this would be a great startup idea. It would be a great startup idea to provide sort of a, a unified pain for watching your models, right? Understanding when they fail, understanding when they're doing something that is, you know, biased in a bad way. I mean, in like a societal sense, uh, or you know, explaining what's going on behind the scenes. So he's over there. He has this idea. Uh, he and I just start chatting. We share connections through the University of Maryland. You know, I remember like we got coffee a couple times uh, in the D.C. area. You know, chatting about you know, what is fairness in machine learning, what is explainability in machine learning, uh, and then uh, and then uh, spun the company out um, with with a couple others on the founding team. Very cool. All right. So so an idea like this, how do you even get like started? Like how does this? Because if this is something that doesn't exist yet, so you're creating like a, a product category. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is uh, something that actually it's, it's it's very interesting to 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 think about this. I think about this in the context of faculty life as well. Actually, like you come into 
uh, a startup, right? Or you come into, uh, you know, day one of running a lab at a university and uh, you kind of make your own metrics, honestly, like there's no, there's no success criteria. There are no, there are no sort of, there's no skeleton of things that you have to do to create, you know, uh, there's no deliverable necessarily. There's, it's just a, it's a, it's a blank slate that you sort of have to confidently uh, uh, decide that you're, you know, you're building in the right direction and you're just going to do it. Uh, and so I think that's shared in, in a number of different areas. I'm sure that's also shared in like composing music or like making artwork or whatever, literally a blank, you know, blank canvas. That's the case here. Um, now, I will say, you know, Adam obviously uh, was acquired into Capital One via a company that he had founded. And so he had experience in that space. Uh, I, like we just discussed, have some experience prior to Arthur as well, both in the founding of companies as well as in advising companies, which is something you end up doing as a faculty member as well. Um, but no, I mean, at the end of the day, it, it's a risky thing to do uh, to sit down and say, hey, we want to you know, build a product from scratch. Um, and, you know, I hope the market's there. Uh, now, the market was there uh, and certainly is increasingly there now, which is excellent for the company. Um, but uh, but even back then, I think we were pretty confident just because of what Adam had been seeing at, at Capital One. Because it's, it's cause the key business problem is machine learning model monitoring. So you gave an idea of what that, what Adam saw from his experience. So this is very common across all industries where you have machine learning, like what they're doing is could be doing something that's failing and it's, it's hurting the business. And if you're not monitoring it, no one knows. That's exactly, yeah, that's exactly right. Um, and it doesn't even have to be a machine learning model. So I, I think it's an exciting time to be in the machine learning model monitoring space because machine learning is really starting to take off, especially in the last say year and a half across enterprise, like uh, companies are deploying, not just like one or a handful of models, but like, you know, hundreds of models at this point to do decisioning. But you know, it could be it could be a, a human process if you wanted to. It could be some agent-based simulation. It could be like a logistics simulation. At the end of the day, it's just some model that's taking some inputs, doing a thing, making a decision, for example, making a prediction, whatever, spitting out that output, and then that output somewhere downstream is impacting some business metric, right? It could be giving credit to somebody. It could be uh, selling a house. It could be some computer vision problem, which is saying yes, you have cancer, or no, you don't have cancer, with some probability and uncertainty. You should you know call out to insurance. Something is being, uh, uh, you know, this output is being used downstream to make some sort of decision. It doesn't even have to be automated, right? Like a human for that cancer one, for uh, example, for example, right? Like a human should be in that loop, obviously, but like they're being informed by the output of this machine learning model and they're going to decide based on it. And so if this machine learning model is bad. Uh, you know, we can talk about what bad means, but if it's not doing a good job at say predicting what it's supposed to predict, uh, then that's going to impact some sort of downstream metric. So, I mean, I think a good um, comparison, well, it's, you know, I don't think comparison is the right word, but, you know, people are familiar with, you know, network monitoring software, right? So that's monitoring your whole network and where are the vulnerabilities, where are the, you know, issues, the the gaps that are causing your network to slow down or if it's not secure. So this is like a same type of category that you're creating focused on machine learning. Yeah, this is actually, this is one of our earlier pitches. Um, and for whatever reason, we sort of dropped the pitch, but, but you are right in that like there's often there are things called NOCs or SOCs, network operation centers, security operation centers, which are doing exactly what you're talking about, right? Like network intrusion monitoring or like understanding, you know, bandwidth or whatever. This is, you know, earlier on, we would often pitch this as an AI operation center. So an operation center for, you know, monitoring and understanding the failure modes for your various machine learning models. Um, so you're absolutely right. In fact, we we do share some technology or at least some high level technology with network intrusion. Network intrusion is uh, one of the the core ways that you 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 understand sort of you know 
when a flow into your network is different than it should be is through something called anomaly detection. And we deal with a lot of this as well on the Arthur side. So anomaly detection, uh, which is closely related to something called data drift, uh, is this sort of like you expect a particular distribution of inputs, uh, and now you're seeing a different distribution than what you expected. Or you expect a distribution of inputs, and now you've got you know, a weird looking you know, input that you know, it looks very, very far away from that distribution. And so maybe you should have a human look at it. And so this is, this is not a new problem. Uh, you mentioned network intrusion, right? Like spam detection is a good example of this as well. I'm trying to like, you know, filter out that spam distribution and spammers are trying to slip through that filter. You can get that same sort of experience in most machine learning model um, uh, environments as well, right? Like it could be the case that upstream uh, some, some data producer uh, got turned off and now you were expecting a bunch of inputs from this data producer uh, that looked, you know, sort of normal. And now you're getting a bunch of negative ones, or you're getting a bunch of zeros, or you're getting a bunch of like nulls or something like that. And you shouldn't be feeding those into your model because your model may, might interpret those in a different way than they should be expected. And so you need something that's going to flag that distribution shift early on, uh, and then you know call out the you know pager duty or whatever to to have some engineer come in and make a decision, or maybe even to have an automatic decision which says you know what this is like really really bad looking, and we should stop decisioning using this model entirely, shut it all off. So the company Arthur has you just announced your Series B round of funding to forty two million. Yeah, uh, that was following your Series A of fifteen million, and then a three point three million dollar seed. So what's the current state of the business in terms of you know size of the company with employees and growth plans ahead as far as as, as far as hiring yeah I, I yeah so thanks for this the shout out for the series b we announced that a few weeks ago and so that's uh co-led by by graycroft and by by a crew um and they're joining with uh many of our, our previous investors who obviously prorated into that um our series a was led by by index ventures um and uh uh yeah, it's, it's, it's very, very exciting to announce that, especially now. I mean, you know, everyone has, we talked about markets earlier. Everyone has looked at the market. You know, I'm, I'm saying this in, in late October of 2022. Everyone's looked at the market in the last six months. And uh, the fact that we were able to raise, uh, you know, an extremely strong uh, up round uh, in a very, very volatile, to put it lightly, market uh, is a strong sign both for the company uh, and also for um, for the team and for recruiting. Um, so that's been that's been a huge boon, actually, uh, in that I think we've benefited a little bit even from from a bit of the collapse in the tech market here because, you know, we have a valid business model uh, and we have a strong team. And I, I think we're actually going to like very not to use the Silicon Valley terms here, but I, I think the next like year we're just going to crush it in terms of this. I think it's like a perfect storm in some sense. Well, uh, you know, the, the way the media is reporting everything, obviously, there's there's challenges, but there's going to be economic cycles. And I've been through a few of them at this stage of my career and great companies with great technology, with a great team and a real business model do get funded and they do get a solid valuation. What the media is doing is they're comparing stuff this year to last year. And that bothers me because last year was an extraordinary year that, you know, the, the amount of venture capital that was investing at the round and the valuations that companies were receiving was just extraordinary. So it's just one of those things where they love to paint the bad news, even though there's definitely more challenging, you know, the, the, there's plenty of capital on the sidelines. So good companies will still get funded and your company timing wise. Yes. will seize the opportunity to hopefully hire the best people because there'll be less competition. Yeah. And, you know, obviously it is, it is really unfortunate to see layoffs happening, but in terms of uh, picking up strong talent, this is something that we, we plan to capitalize on for sure. Well, 
history shows some of the strongest companies that have been built started in a recession. Like that's when these companies were born and have achieved great things. So, uh, so now's one of those economic periods that if you're building a company, now's the time to hopefully build a solid organization where you can attract the best talent and hopefully create a market leading category creator. So we will see what's it like working there at Arthur. What's the, what's the culture like? Yeah, culture I, uh, is something you know, everyone's going to say this, but it's something that we we truly do believe in. And so from from the get go, you know, we haven't talked about uh, some of the you know concerns like like fairness uh, and bias in machine learning. This is like one of the the core components of of what Arthur's been thinking about uh, since before founding, to be honest. And we've put this sort of uh, social bent into the blood of the company since since before founding, and that includes you know the founding team, obviously the early members. Uh, the current members, uh, as well as the investors themselves. And so we have, in terms of culture, you know, we have a, a real focus on, for example, building on a diverse workforce. We have a real focus on maintaining thought leadership and helping to, uh, you know, understand and guide the sort of uh, the evolution of this very sort of nascent space, this understanding of, of, you know, societal impacts of automated decisioning systems. That is something that we, you know, uh, you know, I, I do a lot of R and D. Obviously, that's something that we we spend a lot of our our cycles on, and we think that that is really paying off already, and will continue to pay off. Uh, and our clients see a lot of uh, a value out of that as well. Um, and uh, culturally, um, you know, uh, it's it's a very very fun group. Um, we have a, an amazing office space uh, in Soho in New York. Most of the engineering and machine learning folks are in in the New York um, area, and so come into the office fairly frequently. Um, we have a, a a presence in, in DC. Uh, I split my time between Seattle and New York, some folks in California, and then we're building out London as well at this point. Um, but you know, the majority of the company, especially on the engineering and machine learning side is, is in New York. Uh, and it's actually, it's, it's quite nice to come into the office. Obviously we're not hundred percent in person, nobody is, um, but it's quite nice to come into the office and to sort of, uh, 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 you know, sort of have like a whiteboarding session on, on, on machine learning stuff. Well, I, I did want to tie what you said into your, your culture, because you do, when I was doing my research on you and Arthur, like you did speak you know, a lot about building a di diverse workforce, because it is part of what you guys do as far as making AI more transparent and equitable. So how, like, what is the, some of the challenges that are out there as it relates to AI and how is Arthur offsetting that? Yeah. So Tons of challenges uh, in this space, right? Like when you when you think so, Arthur sits in, in what what people will sort of call ML ops, so machine learning operations, and this this is a, a large a large area that goes all the way from like data engineering, data collection, into like training models, uh, into uh, validating the models, putting them into production, and so on. Arthur is at the end of this pipeline, so we sit in the production monitoring uh, part of this pipeline. We do a little bit of validation now with some integrations uh, with with some of these validators, like like MLflow. Um, but we sit in the production monitoring space. So, you know, there's obviously a lot of work to be done in training big models. You see this in the news a lot, right? Like the newest language model or the newest diffusion-based model or whatever. There's a lot of work in, you know, storing data, cleaning data, and so on. There's a lot of work to be done in even understanding the space of even monitoring a model. Like, what metrics do I care about? Uh, how does, you know, let's say I, I care about a particular type of fairness metric or a particular performance metric such as accuracy. Well, what if I don't have feedback telling me that my model is doing a good job or a bad job until six months or 12 months down the line? What can I say about how it's performing even before I know for sure how well it's performing? Let me give you a concrete example here. Let's say that I have a model at, for example, a large finance financial institution that's giving out, uh, that's approving me for credit, right? It's approving me for a credit card or not. 
I'm actually not going to know for a specific individual. I'm not going to know if I made the quote unquote right choice by giving someone credit until 12 months down the line, right? If they're still paying off their credit, great. If they're not, I made a mistake. I lost some money. So there's a lot of research that we're doing, which is like trying to understand how we can estimate how well a model is doing when we don't have ground truth is what you might call this. And let's stick with that example. Let's say that I am not allowed to ask for, for example, somebody's membership in a sensitive group, right? I can't ask for, for example, race or, uh, or I can't ask for religion, something like that when I'm uh, applying for credit, right? There, there are a number of laws around this uh, and it varies based on whatever financial problem that you're, you're dealing with, but let's say that I can't do that. How do I estimate uh, my performance across sensitive groups, right? I, I don't want to be mistreating, right? I don't want to be mistreating a particular group, uh, let's say a particular race. Uh, but if I don't know the membership of a particular point in these groups, what can I say about that? And so this is also open research that we're, 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 um, we're looking into pretty happily on the Arthur side. Um, ditto and explainability, right? I might have some black box model that I've deployed, which is uh, generating language, right? I might be, I don't know, summarizing language articles uh, taken from whatever the New York Times to uh, make little snippets that I want to put on social media, like a tweet, right? How do I measure what's going on there? How do I how do I know it's performing well? And how do I understand, you know, why a particular, I don't know, pronoun was used for a particular CEO when I summarized automatically this document? So there's a lot of work to be done in the interpretability and explainability space uh, as well. And so we publish work in the space, uh, you know, we give talks on this, and then obviously we deploy it in our platform. Okay. So do you think AI is going to be the core focus for investors? Like you see different waves, right? All of a sudden something, a sector gets hot and all the investors are like scrambling to make investments. Um, you know, <laughs> you know, crypto was you know, got cold, right? So now I'm like, okay, machine learning, AI, which, you know, you're looking at some of the, you know, recent investments in, uh, you know, content generation as it relates to AI, things like that. So do you think this is going to be the, the next wave? You guys are early, so it's obviously great. Yeah, so yeah, you mentioned Web3. So I, I think there is a shift, right? Web3 is, is no longer kind of the, um, the darling of, of VCs. And there's this discussion that's rising around, you know, what, talk about PR, uh, you know, Stanford is now called foundation models, uh, which that name is stuck, but these are effectively large language models or, you know, large, large models that you can train somewhere using a lot of money and a lot of data, uh, and then maybe release the model or release access to the model and fine tune it on a particular domain uh, and use it for a totally different task. So I could use it for you know, planning or logistics or uh, language translation or whatever. So it's these, these base models that are trained on a lot of data, uh, you know, OpenAI comes to mind uh, with, with their GPT, GPT-3 um, and like Dolly and stuff like that. They're trained on a lot of data, using a lot of money, and then you can sort of build a new layer of startups on top of that is the idea. Um, and I do think you're going to see a lot of money flowing into that. And I actually am, you know, some of this I think is getting oversold a little bit right now, but I, I do think we're going to see a lot of companies, exciting companies coming out, which are saying, hey, you know, I'm going to lean on this, like um, this nebulous, enormous uh, you know, black box model, I'm going to, you know, add in my own sort of secret sauce, I'm going to add in my own uh, data, which is proprietary, and I'm going to use this to, to do some sort of decisioning that wasn't previously seen as possible. Um, and so I'm excited for that. Uh, I think we're probably going to see a bit of a hype cycle there as well, obviously, but like, that's the way it is. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I'm like, Oh, here it is. This is the next wave. They're all racing towards that. Um, all right. So, so how do you decide as a professor, researcher, because I'm sure you get lots of opportunities, lots of ideas, things that you see through your travels where 
entrepreneurs, you know, need advisors, right? So how do you decide which, where to spend your time? Yeah. So I've advised a, a number of companies over the years and, you know, I still happily do this. Uh, some of this is, it's, it's a very personal experience, especially, you know, when, when you're approached pre-founding even, or, you know, pre-seed or at seed, et cetera. Um, you know, you, you, you have to, 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 to truly believe in the team. So for me, it's, you know, I, I, I think I'm actually very, very open about this. I think I have it on my website even, which is saying, you know, I, I prefer to advise Maryland and CMU uh, founded companies. And so some of that is because I have the personal connection there. And some of that is, I believe it is actually, you know, my duty, if you will, as an alumni or as, as a faculty member to build out the strength of those brands and the strength of those networks. And so all things considered, obviously I'm not making the decision to found, you know, advise every one of these these companies, but that's a that's a good tiebreaker. The thing that I really, you know, makes me, you know, decide to devote energy into advising a startup is is the team and the problem space, right? Those those are unsurprising answers, but I have to uh, feel like this this team is in it for the right reasons. Uh, and the problem space is interesting as well. So I can give a quick example, actually. And this company does not exist anymore, so I'm not, you know, saying this to to pitch pitch a successful company, but. Um, so I, I became involved in a, a company that was uh, called Ensu, uh, which was founded by um, a Maryland alum and then a, a guy um, sort of from the financial finance space uh, in Australia. Doesn't exist anymore. Uh, you know, business model didn't really work out, and uh, and Spotify actually came and did actually what they were trying to do and sort of ate ate their market, uh, if you will. Um, but I really believed in what they were trying to do, which was uh, basically create some sort of uh, mental self-reported mental health. Uh, tracking app uh, that uh, that correlated with things like uh, uh, you know what you were listening to, uh, so it would would try to understand uh, your your music listening habits and some of your like meditation habits and things like that uh, via self reported uh, sort of emotional uh, data, and then it would help you sort of understand um, basically a, a tracking app that was gamified a little bit to get that information. So it wasn't trying to like you know automatically change your your mood using machine learning, which I, I think maybe is a little bit of snake oil. This is just like a, a tracking app, which would help you sort of understand uh, uh, your self-reported mental state. And the, the team was incredible. I, I just the, the the one the um, the one technical founder uh, Travis from 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 Maryland was just you know really really devoted to mental health. He was very open about some of his struggles with that space. Uh, and uh, you know they approached me to, to to join in on this. And you know like I said, company doesn't exist anymore. But um you know love the team, love the idea, really really like love just how passionate they were about doing something good. So that that's the kind of thing I think that will make me advise a company. Uh, obviously, I want to have you know the the chance of a successful a successful exit there as well. And I, I thought that they did. They just got a little unlucky. That's the way it is. Um, yeah. So what advice would you have for someone who is uh, a tenured professor that is thinking about, you know, working with a startup full time and, and, you know, taking a leave of absence? It's obviously, uh, it's, you know, it's, there's some challenges, I would think of what you experience as a professor compared to building a startup from scratch. Yeah. Although they are more similar than you would think they're, they're more similar than you would think. Um, so when, when you walk in day one as a as a as a faculty member at a university, um, you know you're you're given a bucket of money that you can spend on students and on travel and on hardware and things like that. But like th there's no handholding basically. There's there's nobody there telling you that what you're doing is, you know, is the right thing to do. It's really like a day a day zero, you know, build build something from scratch moment. Startups are a lot like that as well. Now, some of the, the problems are different. You know, obviously the size of the money. I like to joke, right? Like everything in startup land has at least one additional zero on it when compared to, uh, to academia. Um, but a lot of the problems are very similar. Making that transition though, post tenure, for example, into working full-time with a startup, for me, the one that I've struggled with the most is actually maintaining um, 
maintaining management of uh, you know some of the some of the the PhD students back at my lab in Maryland. Um, you know, it's a very personal relationship. Agreeing to advise and mentor uh, a PhD student—that's a five-year-ish, you know, plus or minus uh, experience. Uh, and you know, if you go on leave at a startup, uh, you know, you that relationship is still there. Uh, and so there needs to be some responsible management of time, uh, uh, even when you are not formally, say, employed at the university. Uh, so, you know, I am on leave right now. I don't get any money or anything from Maryland, but like I, I still uh, have PhD students that I am responsible for placing well in industry. So that that one to me was, you know, in retrospect, obviously should have not been a surprise. Uh, but that, that's been a that's been a tough, maybe the toughest balancing act. But there are really strong similarities between starting a company and starting a large lab at a university. Totally makes sense. Yeah. Now that you think about it, it's yeah, you're starting from scratch. You got to build out your reputation, your curriculum and your research. So it totally makes and, sense. And recruiting and funding the lab is the big one. So I spend mm. a lot of time on sales calls, obviously now with Arthur, but I spend a lot of time on what were effectively sales calls in academia as well, basically, you know, working with program managers to get money to fund my lab. And that, that actually is a skill that translates reasonably well, which has been nice. All right. So what are three apps you can't live without? Well, for anyone who has seen me use a phone, uh, I can't, I can't use a phone. Uh, <laughs> no, I, I, I love Duolingo. Um, so some of this is uh, representing, not up to CMU, but I actually, I religiously <laughs> use Duolingo. I've been using it for a long time, uh, trying very desperately to learn Chinese, which is not going very well. And if you ask me to say anything in Chinese right now, I'm going to tell you no. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, that's a big one. Uh, recently, a little bit more addicted to Twitter than I should be, even though I'm not very active on it. Um, yeah, number three, probably the camera app. <laughs> okay. Yeah. All right, how about a, a podcast or a book recommendation? Yeah, I um I love a canticle for Leibowitz. Uh, have you heard of that book before? Classics. I've heard of it. I haven't. I haven't. I haven't read any, but I I've heard of it. Yes. It's um, it's back from the I think late fifties, maybe early sixties, like you know height of you know being afraid that we're going to be uh you know nuked basically. Uh, and it's, it's one of these early Hugo Award winning, which is you know the highest award in sci-fi, Hugo Award winning books, and it's. Uh, it follows, I think it's a Catholic monk, something like that, uh, trying to uh, uh, basically maintain humanity's knowledge through what you might cheekily call a business cycle of humanity, which is from apocalypse to apocalypse, trying to maintain uh, basically written word over time. And so it, it, it's, a, it's an interesting like Cold War era uh, take on, um, well, the cycle of humanity in the presence of uh, sort of apocalypse level events. And I, I, it's just beautifully written. And it's just a, it's a very interesting tome from that time, obviously before, before our time even. Yeah. Very cool. What do you like to do for fun outside of work? I love running. I'm a stereotypical academic who runs in boulders. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> That's great. Uh, perfect. Well, John, thanks so much for taking the time to walk us through your background story, all the great work you've done in, in academia, and obviously all the great work that's happening at Arthur. Yeah, thank you for having me. And you know, quick shout out, we are hiring actively, so please do reach out if you're a strong back-end engineer, front-end engineer, machine learning engineer, customer sales, success person, sales, et cetera. Um, but yeah, Keith, it's been excellent being on here with you.
Well, that's our show. I hope you found it useful and entertaining. If you did, please make sure you subscribe so you'll get future episodes. Also, please consider leaving us a five-star review and share this podcast with all of your friends and colleagues in the industry. It all really helps us out. Last but not least, don't forget to visit VentureFizz.com, the most trusted source for tech and startup jobs, news, and insights. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.